Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries. I want to welcome you to our Insight into Isaiah program. We are in our continuing study of uh, the last 27 chapters of Isaiah, and we chose those because of the incredible parallels they have to the New Testament teaching and also about a lot of prophecies about the Messiah. Uh, we are continuing on. We're in chapter 42 now, and uh, we're going to begin this, this study at verse 14. So without any further ado, let me take you to Isaiah 42, verse 14, and let us begin. I have kept silent for a long time. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now, like a woman in labor, I will groan. I will both gasp and pant. I will lay waste the mountains and the hills and wither all their vegetation. And I will make the rivers into coastlands and dry up the ponds. Now, before I go any further, this passage like other passages that we have in Isaiah, is alluding to future events. In this particular case, this passage, like others, is alluding to the events we call the Day of the Lord, the Great Tribulation, that time frame. Now, in the introduction, I gave you a hint of another passage earlier that addressed it a little bit more. So remembering what we just said in these two verses, let me take you back again to Isaiah chapter 13. This is under the oracle uh, concerning Babylon, and I'll touch on that for just a moment. But let me reread to you again, and we gave an allusion to you in the introduction of the book about this passage. Chapter 13, beginning at verse 6, and look at the parallels between this and what we just read in Isaiah 42. Here it says in verse 6, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt. And they will be terrified, and pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation. He will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises. The moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. In the introduction, I shared with you about how the gold of Ophir uh, came, was part of Sol uh, King Solomon's gold mines. It was a legend. There no, was no such thing. And so when he makes the statement, I'll make mankind more rare than what was a legend, I mean, that's pretty rare, uh, the, the, the judgment that will come. Now, if you remember, when I read to you here in chapter 42, there's this reference to a woman that's in labor. That's what Isaiah said earlier. Making the land desolate, that's what's being referred to here as well. And so he's tying it together. He's alluding to what he gave you back in chapter 13 while he's telling you some things here in chapter 42. He's setting up the contrast again. wants to get your attention. There's a day coming and a time coming when God's going to judge the world. And it's going to be an absolute and complete judgment. It's going to be a day of reconciliation. Sinners are going to be exterminated uh, out of it. It's not going to be the kinds of things we've seen in the past where God pours out a judgment and then a bunch of other people survive and we repeat the process or God is long-suffering. And so there's a day coming when the long-suffering of the Lord ends. There's a day coming when there is a complete and total end to the nonsense, to sin and iniquity. And so he's making reference, hey, that day is coming. And, of course, the key is that, well, people like you and me, we're in this world. And, oh, by the way, uh, the last time I checked, um, I'm not pure. I am not sinless. I, I'm still subject to a lot of things that are going on in this world. And I'm, my flesh is, 
is powerful. My spirit is weak. Uh, I, I kind of tend to do things that are pleasant to me as opposed to what is right. And as a result, um, I, I am constantly having to ask God for forgiveness because I occasionally transgress him. I get involved in things that the Lord doesn't want me involved in. I think of things. I speak of things. Whatever the case may be, we're all in the same situation here in the world. But we know there's a day coming when there will be ultimate judgment. How in the world are we going to make it? How am I going to meet the standards that God is going to expect for us to be part of his kingdom? Well, that's the question that is answered by him sending the Messiah. The work of the Messiah as the Redeemer is to come and to address those kinds of things. And so if we go back to chapter 42 again, let us continue to read, and you're going to hear again this dilemma, if you will, of not being wise toward the Lord, not paying attention to the Lord. We're in this, in this status, and how is he going to address that problem that we have? So continuing on, let me take you to verse 16. I will lead the blind by a way they do not know. In paths that they do not know, I will guide them. I will make darkness into light before them and rugged places into plains. These are the things I will do, and I will not leave them undone. They shall be turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in idols, who say to molten images, you are our gods. Now, clearly, we have to make a decision that says we want the Lord to be the Lord in our life. If, we are, if, if we're so caught up in the world that we just want to live a mortal life and we're not concerned about immortal things, that we want nothing to do with the eternal, well, then guess what? That's what you're going to get. But for those of us who are looking beyond the mortal life, those of us looking beyond this mere existence here, the Lord says, I'm going to do some wonderful things for you. Even though you're blind and don't know which way to go, I'll lead you. Even though you don't quite understand, I'll be the understanding for you. And I will guide you so as that you will accomplish what it is that you're hoping for, because I, the Lord, will do it. So now in verse 18, he says this, Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or so deaf is my messenger whom I send? Who is so blind that he is at peace with me, or so blind at the servant as the servant of the Lord? You have seen many things, but you do not observe them. Your ears are open, but none hears. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to make the law great and glorious. But this is a people plundered and despoiled, and all of them trapped in caves or hidden away in prisons. They have become prey with none to deliver them, and a spoil with none to say to them, give them back. This is an interesting way to describe it, but let me give you a more modern uh, kind of definition of what he just said. He said, if you're in sin, you're deaf. If you're in sin, you're in blindness. You're in darkness. You don't see the light. If you're in sin, you don't know it, but you've been taken captive. If you're in sin, you're enslaved to that stuff, and you're going to die. Basically, that's what he's saying. He said that's what sin does. It, it entraps you, it enslaves you, and, and you think you have ear, but you can't. You think you see, but you don't see. And that's one of the great things that we have about, um, uh, that we have to come to terms with. And this has been my own experience in going through Scripture and learning the Scripture over my life. There have been many, many moments in which that I will get into the Scripture, and I read and I study and I look at it, but then it's a little bit later after I've come to terms with it for a little bit, been oriented to it, all of a sudden I'll begin to see. All of a sudden I'll begin to hear and understand what's going on. Why didn't I see and understand from the very beginning? Why didn't I just get it right off the bat? Why didn't Israel recognize the Messiah as soon as he showed up? Why was it such a struggle for them? Why is it a struggle for us to, to walk out our faith 
And yet the fact of the matter is we're kind of wholly ignorant of our faith and what's going on and what the Lord is really doing. And it goes to this is the nature of what sin has done to us. By being separated from the Lord, we are, we are at the point where we don't even have the means ourselves to correct the situation. When I was, uh, I've shared this story before, I'll give a short testimony of it. When I was 12 years old, and uh, I made a, a call on the Lord to, um, to save me, whatever that was at that time, my understanding. I remember very distinctly there was one evening that I was walking on the sidewalk in front of my house, and I have a very distinct memory. I, I know exactly what, how the light was shining that night and the street lights, and, and, and I was walking along, even though the direction where I was at. I could even take you to a place in my hometown and show you the exact sidewalk and exactly where I was at. I mean, this thing crystallized in my memory because for the first time I experienced something inside of me welled up. I now believe it to be the Holy Spirit welled up inside of me and it began to pose a question to the Lord. And I'm basically listening. I'm listening to the question being posed and I'm, you know, hearing this conversation. And here's essentially the question that was posed. What would we do, Lord, if all the information that we had about you was wrong and that we didn't know the truth? We, we wanted to be a part of things, but we were completely wrong. What in the world would we do? And I remember after the question was posed, me trying to think through it, trying to consider it. And there was a kind of a, a sense of desperation about, oh, my gosh, I mean, we, we don't have any means. We don't have the ability to, if we're that deceived, if we're that wrong, if we're on the wrong path, how in the world do you know you're on the wrong path? And how in the world do you get that corrected? Uh, because it, obviously we're so deceived, we don't, we don't know what is the right thing. And... Um, and then the answer came forth from the same voice that had posed the question, and it said this. It said, in that case, Lord, you would have to deliver us. You would have to save us. We can't do it. You would have to do it. You would have to make something incredible happen, you know, for our benefit. And suddenly, it was at that moment, I understood, why is it that I want to trust the Messiah, that I want to trust the Redeemer? Because he is the one who knows. He's the one who understands properly. He's the one who's making up the difference. I can't do it for myself, but he's going to do it for me. He is going to accomplish all that needs to be accomplished so that I might be delivered from this life and this world that I am in at the moment where I'm deceived, I'm in sin, I don't know which end is up, I'm in darkness, you know, I've been taken captive. He's the one that's going to set me free. He's the one that's going to put me in the light. He's the one that's going to deliver me from all of the ill effects and the causes that have been in my life. Now, i got to tell you, that's quite a thought for a 12-year-old boy. And it was profound to me. And it stuck with me. You know, that dynamic. So later on, when I'm now a young man, and I'm studying the book of Isaiah, here's Isaiah posing the same questions. He uses a few more words. He uses a few more pictures. But he's essentially asking the same thing. What are you going to do if you have ears but you can't hear? What are you going to do if you have eyes but you can't see? How in the world are you going to come to terms with what God is doing here if his ways are way above your ways and you're going in the wrong direction? How in the world will you be, how, how will this work out? Because here in Isaiah, he's now laying the case out for why we desperately need to have a Messiah and a Redeemer. And that this is the work he will be doing. 
these are the things he's going to do for us uh, from it. Let me continue on, uh, because it's going to repeat this again. Verse 23, who among you will give ear to this? Who will give heed and listen hereafter? Who gave Jacob up for spoil and Israel to plunders? Was it not the Lord against whom you have sinned, in whose ways they are not willing to walk, whose law they did not obey? So he poured out him the heat of his anger and the fierceness of his battle, and it set him aflame all around. Yet he did not recognize it, and it burned him, but he paid no attention. Isaiah is basically saying, you went in the path of sin. You didn't know it, but you did. And as a result, you can't even understand the simple dynamics of what God has been doing, especially on the judgment side. You still don't get the connection of how God is trying to get us to respond to him. When I was in leadership training, I, was turned, I learned that um, there were two types of methods that are used to lead people. Two types of ways that you stir people. One, they called the warm fuzzies. In other words, they treated you nice. They'd use praise and compliments, and they would kind of put the carrot out there in front of you and, and, and get you to go in a particular way because it was desirable and pleasant, and, oh, there's a reward, and I'll, I'll go that way. So we call it the warm fuzzies. But some people won't respond to that. Some people, oh, yeah, I see it, but it doesn't move them. And for those others, you have to use the other methodology, which is called the kick in the butt. And instead of the carrot, you get the stick. And you get whacked with a stick, and that moves you. you know. And essentially, the Lord is trying to do this with Israel. He's trying to show you, look, I'm offering you something wonderful. It's so wonderful, you'll sing a new song about it. It'll be very pleasant. It will answer all of your needs. How many people will respond to that? Oh, a few. What about most of the people? No. So what's he do? Punishment. We get the stick. But then do we recognize what has been happening? Do we understand how the Lord has been approaching us from a positive praise standpoint, blessing standpoint? Or do we understand how he approaches us from a cursing standpoint, from a judgment standpoint? Let me share with you uh, one of the observations that I've made about my Jewish brethren in the modern day that we have today. And you know the history of Israel. Um, Israel was first formed, promised through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's sons became the tribes. They came back. They inhabited the land. All of the history of Israel through the kings and so forth, up to the point of um, judgments coming upon Israel, being scattered in the nations. And here we are, you know, the Syrians scattered the northern tribes, uh, the Romans scattered the, the, um, the southern tribes, and some of them are starting to come back. But this whole dynamic, everything has been going on. Why did we get exiled to the nations? Why did we get kicked out of the land? Well, the simple answer is because we sinned. Now, that simple premise that I just spoke to, that all of you are agreeing to, you walk up to a Jewish person and you try to repeat that and they won't believe it. I'm serious. If you go up and you say, hey, why are you scattered in the nations? Why aren't you in the land? I mean, the land was given to you and your fathers. Why aren't you in the land as a descendant of them continuing to live in land. What happened? Well, we, we came out to the nation. But why? Why did God cast us out here? Well, I don't know that God cast us out here. You don't believe that Israel sinned and that God punished us like that he warned us through Moses and the other prophets that if we continued to sin and not and break his covenant and so forth, that he would cast us out of the land into the hands of our enemies and into the nations. You don't believe that? If they do, they're not willing to admit it. They certainly won't admit it to one of us especially one of us that are here with the testimony of Yeshua. They won't admit that. And that's essentially what's being posed here in this question. He says, you know, where he, in, where he asks the question, he says, you know, who do you think did this? 
that cast you out of the nations. What, who, how do you think that really worked? Do you think, do you think your enemies were that tough, that difficult? Or do you think there's a possibility that God allowed that to happen? And that it was part of a grander scheme of you getting the stick instead of the carrot. It's very difficult for a lot of my Jewish brethren to accept that premise. And as a result, it's very difficult for them to come to the point of repentance. It's essential for us when we come to the point of repentance to come to the realization we have sinned. Stop fighting it. Stop explaining it away. Stop justifying it. We have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. And, and now it's not good for us. And we want better than this. We don't want continued harm uh, that we brought upon ourselves and this continued just judgment against us. Being scattered in the nations for Israel has been devastating to us. No temple. No priests. A lot of the commandments of the law we can't keep. We're confused about what date on it is on the calendar. It's general state of confusion and frustration and difficulties and we don't get along with one another and if you take a take a step back from modern Christianity and particular the messianic movement I can tell you why we have all the turmoil we have because we're not living in the promised land and we're scattered in the nations and we're still enduring the punishment that God said he would give to us if our fathers wouldn't obey. We are here because of our fathers. Let me, just for a moment, I want to take you to the prophet Jeremiah, who has something to say that's very similar to this. In Jeremiah chapter 16, and beginning at verse 10, this is how Jeremiah said the same issue. Now, it will come about when you tell this people all these words that they will say to you. Okay, I've been sharing these words about judgment and so forth, and here's what it says. For what reason has the Lord declared all the great calamity against us? And what is our iniquity and what is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? In other words, I see the calamity. I see us being scattered in the nations. What do we do? What happened that caused this to happen? Verse 11, then they, you are to say to them, it is because your forefathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and have followed other gods and served them and bowed down to them. But me they have forsaken and have not kept my law. Why do we get, why are we scattered in the nations? Why are we subject to the punishment of the Lord? Our forefathers sinned. To the point, they got kicked out of the land. And they have forsaken the commandments of the Lord. They've forsaken the law. And now, what is our situation? Well, here's what Jeremiah has to say about us right now. Verse 12. You too have done evil, even more than your forefathers. For behold, each one of you is walking according to the stubbornness of his own evil heart, without listening to me. So I will hurl you out of this land into the land which you have not known, neither you or your fathers. And there you will serve other gods day and night, for I shall grant you favor. Can I go ahead and just tell you right now how true those words are? My forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and my others, never heard of Oklahoma before. And that's where I've been scattered to. I've been scattered to a remote part of the earth that they never knew about us over here. That's how powerful the judgment of God has been upon us. And again, he's talking about um, in that passage, which is similar to passages here we have in Isaiah, about this dilemma of that we're not paying attention to the Lord. Again, I'm repeating to you that Isaiah is sermonizing here. He's trying to provoke the reader and the listener to 
to step back and take stock of your situation and how did you get here? Where did you come from? How, what happened? How did we get in this situation? By the way, the dilemma and the basic problem we have, how in the world is it ever going to get solved? Is this it? We just live our mortal life. We pass away and there's nothing else. Or maybe there are consequences and there's really a God who created thing and he put a living soul inside of a mortal body. And even though the mortal body goes back to the earth, that soul still alive and something's still going to happen after that mortal body is done. What's going to happen and what will be the ultimate judgment? Some people deal with it and some people don't deal with it. Those that don't deal with it are interested in idols. Those that deal with it are the ones who are calling out to the Lord. And they don't have the ability to solve the problem. God's going to have to do something. It's going to have to do something incredible for us to overcome that. Chapter 43 now, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheva in your place. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored, I love you. I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west, and I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my own glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Um, that's an incredible positive thing. The Lord is saying, I'm the one that's going to be the Savior. You're not going to save yourself. I'm going to redeem you. And here's the wonderful things that are going to happen to you. You know, I took you to um, Jeremiah. Let me take you back to Jeremiah 16 again from where we were at, where he posed the question and he said to us, you too also have sinned even more than your forefathers. Listen to what he says immediately after that. This is what Jeremiah says, which parallels just what Isaiah said. Jeremiah 16, beginning at verse 14. Therefore, day, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel from the land from the north and from all the countries where he had banished them, for I will restore them to their own land which I gave to their fathers. Jeremiah is basically saying, remember back when we were in Egypt and we were enslaved and the Lord delivered us? He did this incredible thing and he brought us out. He said, that's going to happen again. Only this time when it happens again, we won't be using the word Egypt anymore. We will be talking about when the Lord does it over the whole world. It won't be a journey in an exodus out of Egypt. It will be a journey in an exodus out of all the nations of the world. A much greater exodus is what he's alluding to. And Isaiah and Jeremiah allude to this in multiple passages about this taking place. Now, just as um, in the case of the story of Egypt and the Exodus, where we see the picture of redemption, where we see the lamb that is slain, the blood is put over the doorpost, all the lessons about God is the redeemer. He's the one who has the covering. He's the one who is the sacrifice. He's the one who's the savior. He's the one who brings us out so that we might know the Lord that we might have a relationship with him. And in fact, from that instance, we were given the law and, and so forth. He said, it's going to happen again. It's going to happen at the end, just before the day of the Lord. 
God's going to take his people wherever they've been scattered. In whatever situation they're in, whether they understand or don't understand. And he is going to redeem and deliver his people out of all the nations of the world. And he's going to bring us to the ultimate promised land, the kingdom that he's going to build. And there will be a final defining thing that takes place. It won't just be another rehash of what history has done. This is all building to a complete climax. It's building to the day of the Lord. It's building to when sinners will be exterminated out of the world and all of the redeemed will be delivered. It's the ultimate exodus, if you will. The ultimate coming to it. Now, before I go any further, I want to... uh, I want to step back just for a moment and let's examine again why did Israel blow this thing and get themselves kicked out of the land? Well, the scripture, and let me repeat the phrase to you, our forefathers sinned. Our forefathers decided to choose other gods instead of creator God, instead of the one who delivered us out of Egypt, instead of the one who made covenant with their fathers, they, they, they decided to dismiss that. They decided to forget that God and go off and pursue things that they wanted to do, made up their own gods, um, do their own thing. And the law that had been given to them, they decided to ignore it and not follow it. So the Lord punished them. He warned them, and he punished them, and he sent their enemies in to take them captive. And they got kicked out of the land. Why should they have the promised land when they're not willing to obey? Because the promised land was given to us because of the covenant and given to us because we would have a relationship with God. And we're not going to have a relationship with God. We're going to ignore him. Then why should we live in his land? So we got kicked out. Okay, so we're all with that. Now, let me kind of come to a modern day, and I want to give a little commentary for the moment. This is the part, to me, that is just mind-boggling. Today, we have a lot of believers who proclaim the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior. Good. Yet, they're making the exact same mistake that my forefathers made in ancient times. They're disregarding his law. They're disregarding the covenants made with our fathers. They don't see themselves as descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, both natural-born and those that are adopted they don't see that's not their identity. They ignore all of that. They can't even, they don't even know what that is. As a result, they are they have eyes but they can't see. They have ears but they're deaf. And they're plugging along thinking everything is great and that they're on the right path. And they are so far removed from the right path, it's, it's mind-boggling. And the only reason why they still are operating, if you will, is that's how great the mercy of God is. They are truly here by the mercy of God. And oh, by the way, I used to be part of them. I used to be right in the thick of it. But now I can see things. Now I can hear certain things. Now I'm beginning to understand certain things. And I can see the mistakes of the past. We have got to overcome them. We cannot repeat them. We must finally learn from the Lord. If we're to go forward correctly. We just can't do it over and over and over again. So you don't have to worry about me being a judge of any person. 
I'm in the same boat with everybody else on this situation. But I would appeal to all of you, my brethren, you need to wake up. You need to open your eyes. You know, excuse the expression, but you need to smell the coffee. Whatever it's going to take. Get out of this doldrums and this apathetic thing you call your faith. And you better start waking up and figuring out what's going on. Because the Lord has some very definite plans for us at the end of the ages. He's not going to leave us in the nations. He's going to come get us. And we're going to make this journey to the promised land. Now, he's given all kinds of things to teach us so that we might understand it. Um, some are doing it and some are not. Some are doing it and still don't get it. Um, this ministry holds a annual Feast of Tabernacles celebration. We've been doing so for many years. The commandment is to keep that feast and to remember how our ancestors dwelt in huts while they were on the journey of the Exodus. Why in the world would God command us to do that every year? And why would he want every generation to go back and review that history and those lessons? I can tell you why. is because it's going to happen again. It's going to happen again in the future. And unless we're oriented to the patterns of the Lord and what his intentions are and so forth, we're going to be highly confused, frustrated, flustered, have no idea what's going on, and probably make huge mistakes and not do what we could have done. If you look at the seven letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, the Lord is clearly speaking to end-time saints. And he's going through certain issues that each of them have that need to be corrected, that need to get turned around. And his, the, the real potential harm that he talks about, if you don't get this done, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to come back and you are not going to be ready. You're going to be asleep at the wheel. You're going to be dead. You're not going to be alive. You're not going to be paying attention. And all of this is going to overwhelm you. So he's calling for the people to become overcomers of the things that will happen. He's calling on us, wake up. By the way, this is exactly what Isaiah is trying to talk about. Isaiah is trying to get Israel to understand what this is about. Now... He keeps making reference to something that's supposed to happen at the end of the ages. So not only was this message given to Israel in his day to try to get them to avoid these future problems, like, for example, avoid being sent into captivity with the Babylonians. He was warning against that, but they did. They disobeyed. And he's also talking about all of Israel being scattered throughout all of the nations from the north, south, east, and west. Don't, don't go that path, but, but it, the Lord has said, yes, that's what is going to happen, and yes, that is what happened. But he's also going further, and he's saying, yeah, but here's what the Lord's going to do in that situation when you, when you don't know what to do. But you've got to turn back to the Lord. You've got to pay attention to what the Lord has to say. Look at, um, look at verse 8 now, chapter 43. Bring out the people who are blind, even though they have eyes, and the deaf, even though they have ears. All the nations have gathered together in order that the peoples may be assembled. Who among them can declare this and proclaim to us the former things? Let them present their witnesses that they may be justified, or let them hear and say it is true. 
Isaiah is saying, hey, all you folks that don't quite get it and so forth, come, assemble yourselves. I want you to hear. Bring forth the person who can explain this as to all that is going on. Isaiah is kind of doing it in kind of a weird third person kind of way. He's talking about in the future somebody who can come and do it. Let me put myself in the first person here. Here I'm appealing to you, taking the message of Isaiah, I'm appealing to all of you and saying, hey, Listen to what Isaiah said. Isaiah said that God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. And God said, and if you believe that, God said there's a day coming when he's going to bring us out of the nations. Now, do you believe that God brought us out of Egypt? Do you believe that was the hand of God that did that? Well, then you should be believing that God's hand is going to be present with us. Stop ignoring this. Stop denying this. Stop hiding yourself from it. This is getting ready to happen. So he goes on to say then, verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before they, there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there's no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there is no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? So here I am, and we think that we're coming to the end of the ages. And we're reviewing what Isaiah is talking about and the other prophets. And God has this plan of reconciliation getting ready to come on the whole world. And we all admit that we're sinners and that we've all misbehaved and we're scattered in the nations. And here's the dilemma. And how in the world do we get saved? Because we have all these sins. And we're dealing with all the issues of how God redeems us. And we come to terms with this. And we're uh, all, all, of, all of these matters... What would you do if somebody stood up, like what Isaiah said, and said, Hey, um, I've got news for you. <laughs> this is all coming to an end. And you don't know it, but you won the big believer's lottery, and you get to be a part of the last generation and see it. All the other generations were building to it. But Boy, you, you really got to be fortunate. You got to be part of the greatest generation in the history of the world and see the coming of the Lord and the establishment of his kingdom. How about that, huh? Would you like to know what's going to happen to you? Would you like to know how real this is going to be, how, God, how big God is? One of the keys to coming to terms with this is coming to terms with who is the God that we serve. Because that will be the basis of what you believe. The way I've posed this to other people in the past and the way I like to do it is, how big is your God? How big is your God? Is he big enough to be the creator of the heavens and the earth? How about the universe? Is he big enough to create the universe? Is he big enough and smart enough that he can make all of the different physical laws and scientific laws and principles down to molecules and atoms and neutrons and protons and, and also gravity and the stars and the earth where we live in this delicate balance of life and create us and, and you look at the complexities and the incredible design of us as human beings, as our bodies running around, and all of the thoughts and all the feelings, and is your God big enough to know about all of that? Is your God big enough that he's willing to look down from his position and love you and take the time to pay attention to you and want to have a relationship with you mind you understanding that we're less than the speck of dust on the scales of everything else going on is your God big enough 
that he wants to have a relationship with even you. Is your God big enough then when you're in the dilemma and there's no way you can deliver yourself that he'll pay the price to come and deliver you? Is your God big enough that he's long-suffering and patient and merciful? And even though we are in some cases dumber than rocks, that he's still willing to work with us. He wants us to be able to say, yes, he is. Let me repeat the words to you. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there is no strange God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I, God, even from eternity, I am he. There is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? So the stage is now set. We know who the Lord is. And who is the Lord to us? Who will address all of these things and help us with all of these things? Isaiah is going to begin to give the answer. Verse 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I have sent to Babylon and will bring them all down as fugitives. Even the Chaldeans into the ships in which they will rejoice. I, the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King, thus says the Lord, who makes the way through the sea and a path through mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the mighty men. They will lie down together and not rise again. They will have been quenched and extinguished like a wick. Do not call to mind the former things or ponder things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I, even I, will make a roadway in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And the beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, to people whom I form for myself and will declare my praise. What in the world is he talking about? Well, it goes back to what I shared with you earlier. Anytime Isaiah starts talking about water in the wilderness, water for the thirsty to drink, he's talking about rivers of living waters to eternal life. He who comes as the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, to grant you the gift of eternal life. And by the way, this is definitely a new thing to come to terms with this and understand it. The new covenant that Jeremiah spoke of in Jeremiah 31. A new covenant I will make. Not like the covenant I made with your ancestors when they came out of Egypt. When they came out of Egypt, I showed myself as to be the Redeemer. I showed myself to do the work of redemption, to deliver you. I was the deliverer. I was your salvation. I brought you to the mountain. I I spoke my words to you. I established a covenant with you. I, I gave you my laws and my commandments so that you might live and prosper and continue on and so forth. But this time, I'm going to do something even more. When the Messiah came, he did that. Literally, instead of God coming down to the mountain and speaking to it, this time God came down and walked amongst us as a man, as one of our countrymen. And he spoke the words to us. Guess what words he spoke? He made reference to what the prophet said. The same instruction, he came teaching those same things. The number of times the Messiah stood up in front of the assemblies of Israel and said, Truly did Isaiah speak of you. Isaiah is giving us a hint, not only that the Messiah will come, but this will be his message. And again, this is the reason why Isaiah gets quoted throughout the New Testament extensively. Because here's Isaiah sermonizing and saying, this is the new and good thing the Lord's going to do. He's going to provide redemption, but it's going to be a lot different than you ever thought. He's going to deliver you. He's going to provide salvation, but it will be different than what you thought. 
but it's a little bit like what was done before, but it'll, it'll be even greater. It'll even be more so. And it will be instead of as a corporate body of all of Israel coming, it will be at the individual and personal level. I, the Lord, am going to come and deal with you personally. And I'm going to do it because I'm the Lord. And I can do it and I will do it. Not because we deserve it. I don't know if you've ever had the thought, I've, I've had this thought many times, where I stop and I go, I'm, my goodness, there's a lot of people that live in my community and in my state, in my country, where, and there's a lot of people that don't know anything about the Lord. How is it that I have come to this understanding and knowledge? How is it that I have a relationship with the Lord and all these other people out here don't? How is it that I know and understand the things I know of the Lord, and yet they know nothing of those things? How, how is that possible? Well, I can tell you right now, it's not because I study the Bible more than them. The answer is because for some reason, God and his sovereignty looked down upon me, and he chose me, and he said, you will belong to me, you're mine, and I'm going to be God to you. And I'm here by the mercy of God. I have no righteousness to commend me. My sins are no less or any more egregious than anybody else's sins. I qualify as a sinner just like everybody else. And yet, the Lord has chosen me to be a part of his glorious kingdom. And to grant me the gift of life. And the God we're talking about is this one that Isaiah is talking about. Right here. Amen? All right. We will pick up our study um, and finish up there from verse 14 on, um, beginning in our next session. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you again for the study of Isaiah. Thank you, Lord, for the prophet and for his sermonizing and his word to help us to understand our new covenant faith, our faith through the Messiah and the work of his redemption. Help us, Lord, to fully grasp and understand all the wonderful things you've done for us and help us to apply them in our lives and walk uprightly before you. We ask all of this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shalom. Shalom.